Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hey writers, we here at the Writer Experience Podcast want to thank all of our listeners and guests for helping us reach over 150 episodes. That's a lot of writing knowledge spread out over three years. And as a way of welcoming new listeners and helping our current listeners rediscover old favorites, we're going to start airing select episodes one week per month. We hope that these writer selects bring some new insight and inspiration to all of our fans and help us celebrate many more episodes to come. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Danny Rubin. Danny is a screenwriter and a playwright. He co-wrote with Harold Ramis the screenplay for Groundhog Day, for which the two received a BAFTA award for best screenplay. He received a BA in biology from Brown University and an MA in radio, television, and film from Northwestern University. Danny has taught screenwriting at numerous universities and lectured on the topic at academic conferences since 1995. He was also a Briggs Copeland lecturer on English at Harvard University. Danny, we are very, very excited to have you on the show today. How are you? Happy to be here, my friend. It's all good. My first question is always the same. For you, where are you in the world right now? I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've been here for about 30 years, not counting eight years or so up in Boston for that adventure. But now I'm back here. And having written Groundhog Day, were you ever based in LA? Were you ever based in Hollywood? I I wrote it when I was in LA. I was in Chicago doing a lot of writing and performing and a variety of (laughs) venues and wrote a screenplay and sold it and kind of took that as a sign to get out to LA and give it a good try. And so I was in LA for a couple of years and that's when I wrote Groundhog Day and then decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in LA and perhaps it was better to get out before I got stuck. So my wife and I moved here with our baby to Santa Fe, and we've been here pretty much ever since, (laughs) with that one side trip, not counting. You briefly touched upon your career trajectory there, talking about moving to LA, and you mentioned how you wrote the script for Groundhog Day, but can you walk us through how that came about, You know what that looked like, how did you get that opportunity, and how it all played out? Sure. Well, I was living in Chicago and just doing a lot of this and that, and I guess it started, I hadn't been thinking that I was going to be a screenwriter, although I was somewhere in the media. I wasn't quite sure where I would land and what I would be doing, but just waiting for something to choose me. And somebody had suggested screenwriting, and I thought, well, I like movies. I could try that. And I came up with a bunch of pitches for a specific, you know, somebody who was looking for things. And in doing that, one of those ideas was what became Groundhog Day. And they didn't respond well to the pitches for whatever reason. However, I had all these ideas now I had brainstormed. I thought, well, maybe I should write one of these. And so I wrote one and looked at it and said, that was fun. I don't think there's an audience for this one, so I'll write another one. And I wrote another one and I thought, oh, this one's pretty good. Maybe I can sell it. 
And I talked to everybody I ever met and said, do you know anyone in Hollywood? Do you know anyone in Hollywood? And I came up with a short list of people, of friends of friends. And one of the people was the current agent of somebody I knew. And he was accepting unsolicited things. And I sent him this script, which was a thriller in the deaf community. And it sold. And the agent said, I'm your agent now, and now you've got a deal. And so I was flying back and forth from Chicago to LA. And at the time, my life was ready for some kind of a change. I'd been there for in Chicago for nine years, and now I was married. And my wife was pregnant, and we thought, well, let's just go with the flow here. They're offering you work in LA. Let's just go to LA. So we decided to do that, which was a great idea just because it was exciting to be in the business that I was in, you know, there were everyone you met had something to do with the film industry and you got to, you know, go to meetings and see the places where people made business and where they made movies and, you know, what it was like on the other side of the phone from all those conversations. And while I was there, I was selling the script I had already sold, rewriting it and trying to get it to a green light situation. And in the meantime, my agent, who I had found just by setting up this script, said, you know, you really need to write something else because everybody's already read that script. And I thought, uh, okay. And he said, just to get you out to meetings, write something quickly. I went, okay. And I looked over the things I had brainstormed before and had those in mind and I was chewing on them. Anyway, the idea for Groundhog Day started to take on some momentum and I just sat down and wrote it and turned that in. And it was a writing sample for about almost a year where it bopped around Hollywood and it got me tons of meetings. And I, off of that, got some more work. So now I was a working screenwriter. And then Groundhog Day got set up with Harold Ramis at Columbia Pictures. And during that period of time, my wife and I were deciding we didn't particularly want to create lives in Los Angeles. Let's go somewhere else. And we moved to Santa Fe. And the whole Groundhog Day thing was already in process. So I felt a little bit secure that I still had business going on. And it was mostly just a life choice, not to live in Los Angeles, but to try and keep going in the movie business, which is what I did. You mentioned there your initial search to get your script out there to find an agent. For those writers listening now who are looking to also follow suit and find an agent in today's climate, obviously that was a different time. Do you have advice for those writers listening who maybe have their own script or writing sample trying to get that out there and get representation? Well, I don't know. Everybody has a different story for how they broke in, and there's no set way to do it. And it's always a little squirrely. Somehow you've got to get the script to people who generally only want to read scripts from people who've already submitted them before and sold something. And somehow you get into the cracks. All I can say is be persistent with whatever you're doing. Sometimes developing relationships with the person at the other end of the phone, even if it's a secretary or a production assistant kind of person, becomes useful. And sometimes they <laughs> read the script just on the side, the first few pages, to see if they get sucked in, and then they become an advocate. So there are those kinds of things. And the other advice I would give is, since the selling of a script is its own business, don't stop writing. If you keep selling the same one and then you finally get a meeting and then somebody says, well, the writing is good, but we're not looking for this. What else have you got? It's helpful to have something else. And also, supposedly you're writing because you enjoy it and there's something about it that you get out of it. So it's better to keep writing than to wait for the phone to ring. That's my message. <laughs>
Love that. Before we dive into process, I would love to talk about your process as a writer. But before we do, probably would make sense to talk about past six to eight months or so of COVID and how that has affected, you know, quarantine, all that affected you as a writer. I know that writers by nature, they write in isolation. So has it affected you much? What has your experience been? I guess I started writing when I felt my personality was really much more extroverted. And it was with reluctance that I realized I was going to be spending a lot of time alone. And one of the things I liked about screenwriting is that you pretty much go into your little hole and brainstorm from your place of peace. And by you, I mean me. My, my place of serenity and creativity and all that is not with a lot of interaction. And so that's part of my process. But then you get out and say, okay, I finished something. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go around, you know, take the trip to LA and meet with people and sort of get my name out there again and see if people are interested in the script. And if it is something, then all of a sudden I'm working with people. And that's the other half of the equation. So with COVID, it kind of slowed things down. I was sort of ready to come out with something new I had written. And it's like, nope, nobody's going anywhere. So I said, okay, I guess I'm going to just extend the digging in phase. So for the most part, I have a environment and a routine and a life, and it's just continued. I write, I play music. I've been doing a little bit more experimenting with different forms during this time because I don't feel real ambitious motivated. It's just sort of like, okay, I'm having a quiet day with no demands on me. What would be fun to work on? So I've just been satisfying a very non-commercial creative side during this period of time, I'd say. And what about similarly for those writers who are listening, who are going through a similar, you know, they're at home, maybe they're struggling with writing though, and they don't quite know where to go to kind of maybe combat their writer's block. Do you have suggestions for how during these times to stay positive and to be productive? It kind of depends on everybody's situation. During the whole COVID phase so far, I've gotten a lot of because Groundhog Day has become such a meme with people stuck at home, I've been approached many times to talk about it. And my feeling is, I don't think I should because helping people deal with the existential crisis of being alone and having a blank sheet of paper and nothing but yourself and to deal with, it feels like a very privileged position if you're really hungry and you're, you've lost your job or your relatives are not well. And so I don't know what kind of advice to give that's really different from what you get anytime. It's always just you and the blank page. And to get yourself motivated, you develop your own methods. Among them, you know, setting a start date to sit down and just write something without any agenda. Just start writing and see where it leads you, that kind of thing. Or to not think about writing and to get as far away from it as possible. And often what happens to me when that happens is over time, I get completely disgusted with myself. And that usually drives me to start writing again. <laughs> <laughs> it's also nice to compare notes with other writers because everybody's going through the same thing. And it really doesn't matter if it's a screenwriter or a poet or a novelist. We do have that in common, the process. And if there are other people, if there's a community of people who are all going through it, it's really kind of nice, especially if you're feeling a dry spell and you're losing self-confidence and you just need somebody to say, yeah, that happens to me. Why don't you take the day off and start tomorrow? You know, whatever it is. And there are plenty of online forums. And if not, you must have, everybody has friends who are also writing and maybe trying to 
you know, hey, let's do 30 pages by the end of the month, everybody go, or five pages by the end of the day, you know, little exercise buddy sort of things. Sometimes that's all it takes. Are writers by nature too hard on themselves, especially during these times? Is it okay to, you know, try, but also maybe fail and then, you know, take a break? Is it okay to kind of just work on something that maybe isn't, you know, the project that you're supposed to work on? Are we too hard on ourselves as writers? We put too much pressure on ourselves, especially right now. Yes, of course. (laughs) But at the same time, we're also susceptible to the fantasy that everything we do is amazing, too. I mean, why would you even start writing something if you didn't believe that it was going to be the greatest thing ever and that somebody else is going to enjoy it as well? And maybe you'll make some money off of it and have a career, et cetera, et cetera. That level of self-deception is really important or, you know, feeling strongly about yourself, especially because those self-doubt things are also absolutely prevalent almost daily, I think. You can go back and forth. So I think it's totally normal to feel that, oh, why do I even bother? Am I any good? I just saw a movie that was so good, I'll never be that good. But it's more often to say, I just saw a movie that got made, that made money, that was so bad, I could do so much better than that. So, you know, we take our motivations where they come from and muddle on. It's not that different from the rest of life, really, is it? How excited are you just to step into the day? How much self-doubt? How much self-worth? How much help from other people? How much feeling of independence? It's all a balance. And if in the end you love the work, you're getting feedback from yourself that this is a good process for you, then that's your sign to just keep going. Danny, we always frame our episodes around different themes. Today, I would love to talk to you about the screenwriting process, your writing process, and maybe use Groundhog Day as we've been talking about it as an example. Are you cool to walk us through your process step by step? Sure, but it's going to be more of a two-step or a step <laughs> or, I don't know, Lindy Hop. Because I change my method for different projects. I don't approach everything exactly the same way because it has different needs. What I know and what I don't know about each project are different. I usually begin by brainstorming. I just take copious notes that are just reflections of where my mind goes. And I write and I write and I write, just dumping down everything I can think of. What's a good scene? What's a good character? What would be fun to see? What would be surprising? What's the theme? What's it about? Why do I care? What got me excited? And somehow between doing that and coming up with just specific ideas for scenes, then I'll start rather than saying, okay, here's how it begins. I'll just start doing these little sketches, you know, a little dialogue between that character and that character just to see where it goes, feel what it looks like see if I can get a sense for who these people are and what their goals are and what they care about or how they interact with each other. And you just, I don't know, I just keep doing that until things start coming to the foreground. It's like, ooh, that scene idea and that scene idea kind of go together. What happens if I, that's the core, that's the engine or the little squiggle that I can react to that gets everything else to attach to it with clarity. And then at some point I will say, okay, where does it begin, middle, and end? What is my actual story here? And I will do an outline and often a series of outlines all at the same time that I'm writing notes to myself and coming up with ideas and funny lines and anything. And 
from that outline, I will then start. At some point, I'll just start writing. And the biggest difference between how I used to write and how I write now is I used to stick doggedly to the outline and say, just finish it, just keep going and make it fit and make it work. And then I'd get to the end and I would have a complete draft of a screenplay that I could look at. And usually, even though it fulfilled all of the checkpoints of what connects what to what, it felt logical from the outline. There are things that work and things that don't work. And sometimes finding something that was not in the outline that is amazing, I used to throw those things out and say, no, just stick to the outline. And now I go, no, follow what's amazing. Who cares what movie I conceived of when I first was thinking of this? The point is to write an amazing movie and make it work. So you recognize the things that come to life and you know, keep worrying them and working them so that you wind up with plenty of things within the screenplay that jump off the page and make it come alive. And it's recognizing that life that is more important than sticking to the plan. And that's, you know, different people have different personalities and some people cannot not stick to a plan and some people can never stick to a plan. And what it takes for you to get from where you're starting place to where you need to be, I can't answer that. One of the things I definitely love about the writing process is the dialogue that you have with yourself and discovery of, oh, I guess I'm the kind of guy who doesn't even take chances when he's writing, or I'm the kind of guy who's always taking chances but can't seem to make sense of things. It's a good conversation to have. And I suppose my feeling about screenwriting in general was that if I'm going to spend say, eight hours a day sitting in front of my computer sort of working towards a screenplay, that's eight hours of my life. This is time that I'm spending alive. Is this wasted time when I'm just buried in the script or staring at a screen? Or is this living? Is this part of my life? What do you learn from the process? What are you teaching yourself about yourself and your own habits and proclivities and What do you think of character? What is a character anyway? Et cetera, et cetera. You just walked us through the steps, a high-level overview. I would love to break those steps down a little bit more and get granular, starting with the inception of the idea. So you've mentioned a couple of times this list of brainstorm ideas that you have. And you mentioned also that you you wouldn't start writing something if you didn't think it was the greatest thing ever. So I guess the first thing is, you know, you did mention how you put those ideas together on paper, but where do you come up with them? Is there a way that you find them, you know, for Groundhog Day particularly? Where did that idea come from? How did that come into your brain and then materialize? Who knows? I, for Groundhog Day specifically, it was part of that idea dump that I had back in Chicago. I just gave myself a weekend and said, come up with 10 ideas. And I came up with, I think, 50, not necessarily good ideas, and most of them just sort of partial ideas, and narrowed that down to 10 that I thought would be interesting. You know, I just, wouldn't it be fun to see this or, or that? All from, for instance, murder in the deaf community, that just came from a life experience where I was doing industrial writing in Chicago, and I worked with a comedy troupe, and we would perform for different groups. And one group that we were hired to perform for was a group of deaf interpreters. And in order to 
noteworthy, funny or interesting to perform for them, had to do some research into the community. And I found all kinds of interesting little tidbits. For instance, I thought it was interesting that an interpreter is like a priest. They're not supposed to divulge anything that they hear. They're just translating. And I thought that was kind of an interesting position. And I was able to chew on that until I came up with an idea for a story within that world of characters. With Groundhog Day, I had done a, I guess, an industrial film for Bell of Pennsylvania. And one of the things when they were helping me with my research and figuring out what their company was about, they told me about Punxsutawney and Punxsutawney Phil as one of the things that kind of an icon that local people there would recognize if we wanted to play with that idea. So when I was brainstorming ideas for movies, and I had this idea of somebody repeating the same day over and over again, I thought of Punxsutawney for some reason as being a good place for this to take place. But the other part of that, in terms of brainstorming, I didn't write that right away. I wrote the death thriller, and I wrote another story called The Kneebiter Institute about all these people who had gotten organ transplants all from the same guy. And it turned out when they were all together, they could recreate the work of this same person. It was kind of a weird concept. And when I finished writing, I was like, wow, that was fun. Well, who's going to want to watch this? (laughs) Who's my audience? So I never did anything with that. But when I had moved to LA and my agent had said, you need to write something new. And I was, at the time, I was reading an Anne Rice vampire book. And just sort of reflecting on why I thought this was kind of cool. And I remember thinking, oh, it's cool because it's like humans, only the rules are a little bit different. And one of the rules was you can live forever. And then I started thinking, well, what is it like to live forever? And would that make a good movie? Because I was always trying to think of new ideas. Every idea I ever had was, oh, is that a movie? Is that a movie? Can I write that? And I thought, the idea of a person who could live forever was really interesting. How would they change? How long would it take them to change? How long would it take one of those sort of arrested development people who doesn't, one lifetime doesn't seem to be enough for them to outgrow their adolescence. Maybe two is enough or three. So I thought this was a really cool kind of mental experiment and maybe even movie, but kind of cumbersome as a movie. Too much time, too many settings and characters. But then I remembered the idea I had about the guy who repeats the same day. And I thought, ooh, eternity turned on its tail. You can get eternity with a circle. This is really cool and all this stuff about repetition. And I knew then I was emotionally attached. It wasn't just a clever idea. It was something that felt like it was about a human life and had some kind of commentary on that. And that was sticky to me. That was like, wow, I've got a plot idea. I've got a way of presenting it that's kind of original. That might get some attention. And ultimately, it's about human life and sort of the relationship between a human life that's eternal, a kind of linear life, and an eternal life that's circular and repetitive. And it was because it became a specific, exciting thing like that. I didn't just arbitrarily pick one and say, yeah, I guess I could write that. It got me excited. And that's definitely one of those things that can really get you writing. You mentioned earlier when an idea takes on momentum, and you had just told us that you challenged yourself to write 10 ideas. And then I realized that many writers probably have a few ideas and maybe choose one of those and move forward with it. But would it behoove writers to maybe 
do what you did and say, you know what, before I even commit to an idea, let's come up with as many ideas as possible before committing to an idea and then choosing the best one. Would you suggest that for writers listening? Not necessarily. I could see that as being a positive thing, but could also be somebody saying, oh, I got this great idea. I'm excited to write, but I think I'll procrastinate instead. I'm going to go think of some more ideas and then I'm going to play with those and then I'm going to decide which one is best. These ideas aren't going anywhere. If you're looking at long-term, you know, life as a writer, they're always going to be there. I haven't tried to go back for a while and, you know, relook at, revisit those original ideas, but there were plenty good. If I didn't have new ones, I could go back and go to those. I think if you're already motivated to write, write. And it's you and the idea and the best of yourself will get into it. And you shouldn't let that stop you. For me, I didn't have any single idea. So I thought I need to start. Let's just see what's on my mind that I don't even know about and start writing all these totally weird, disparate, crazy, incongruous, summer reactions to things, reactions to headlines. I think I thumbed through a newspaper at some point to see if anything jumped out at me. You can always do that. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with having the discipline in your writing day or your writing week or whatever to take a break from whatever it is you're working on and just brainstorm some new stuff, see what you come up with. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Groundhog Day was released in 1993. Obviously, it was a different time then. Internet had not become what it now is. Streaming services didn't exist. There weren't many platforms allowing you know, all different writers, all different artists of different types to put all their work out there. So nowadays, do you find that it's harder to find ideas, unique ideas? Obviously, Groundhog Day is cited as being a really unique idea. Is it harder to find unique ideas now that you know so many people have voices and there's so much oversaturation? I don't know. I don't worry about that. For some reason, coming up with unique ideas is not my problem. My challenge is getting people who are used to making money on things that are the same idea wanting to take a chance on something that's a different idea. It takes 
a real concerted effort and sometimes, I don't know, really having an intimate knowledge of who the buyers are and what they're looking for and having relationships with people who will maybe trust you and go the extra mile and trust that the idea is going to work. I do see an awful lot of sameness out there. And of the creative stuff, it still stands out. It still stands out. So yeah, what you're expressing isn't really my issue. What about the next step you described? You mentioned once you move forward with an idea, you would kind of just throw everything onto the paper, so to speak, dialogue, you said sketches, that kind of thing. Do you get a little more granular with that process for Groundhog Day? Had that story already been pretty flushed out when you decided to develop it at that time? Or I know you mentioned it kind of went through different periods of what it was. When I started writing it for real, you know, I started, as I said, just brainstorming what's unique, what's interesting, what's fun, what's surprising, who are the characters, how will it work? And, you know, came up with tons of stuff. And I had come out of a world of sketch comedy. So when I was in Chicago, I wrote a lot of sketch comedy. And because of that, my comfort with that, and sort of the way I thought of this idea, it was a very montage I kind of felt like a person who was in this situation would go through phases of time, a phase where you're just helpless and feeling like you're going crazy and depressed because of that, and then a phase when you realize you can do anything and it's sort of an adolescent exuberant phase, and then a phase when that becomes old and you start going deeper into kind of dark, depraved things from boring stuff like learning how to play pool or bowl or simple things like that with great skill because you've put so much time into it. But for what? So what? And to, you know, depraved things that you wouldn't do if your life had consequences, but here's what you're going to go ahead and try now because you've tried everything else. And eventually a period of suicidal depression and then a period of rebirth of rebuilding. Anyway, it occurred to me that it would work like that. And so I would put different sketch ideas just within those grand phrases. I built the structure that way. And it was a little herky-jerky. It was funny. It was original. It was fun. It had so many things that I liked. And actually, the other thing I should say is I knew I wanted to write it quickly, which I'm not famous for. And well, I had to organize it and just start writing it. And I didn't want to eat the whole elephant. I had to divide it up. And it occurred to me that TV movies at the time were really seven acts long. And I thought, if I divide this into seven acts, I can write little 12 to 15 minute sections and put those together. And so I did that. It was actually divided into the acts. And I even had little titles before each section, sort of like, can you remember the novel, like Tom Jones or something, you know, in which Phil discovers his immortality, in which Phil, you know, tries to kill himself. And it was divided up like that. And I sent it to my agent that way, who was very complimentary. He really liked the script and said, but you know what, let's sell it as a regular movie because TV movies are their own little world. And they only at the time, except approved writers who've done it before, and you might have a harder time doing that. So why don't you take out the act breaks and just smooth it over? And that just took me a day. 
And that was the script that went out. And as I said, nobody recognized it as a Hollywood movie, just something they thought was amazing. So I got tons of meetings, but everyone said, I loved Groundhog Day. Of course, we can't make it. What else have you got? Or would you like to look at this list of projects that we've got going? Anything that you want to work on? And it went on like that. I did other work. And then when it got to Harold Ramis, who saw it as something that wasn't just like everything else, he wanted to do something that didn't bore him, that was different. And he got excited about it, but he also knew it had to become somehow an establishment Hollywood movie. And so there was that process to beat it into a romantic comedy form, basically. And Harold gets a lot of credit for that. He did really the yeoman's work of the craft of making the movie that you saw. You just talked about your writing process, you know, the outline of the seven acts, and then obviously writing it. Can you walk us through how many drafts you went through on the script? And then also, you just talked about how Harold also went in and kind of did his thing too. So do you know how many total drafts there were and how many times it went through that process? It's impossible to count. And I don't even know, like just naming drafts of scripts and figuring out, you know, how the name reflects how far along you are or what you've done before. (laughs) Like, do you just date it or do you call this draft 1A, 1B, 1C? Because you change different amounts of things every time you look at it. And when computers came along, which they were at that point, you know, every time you read it, you're editing. Every time you just read it over, you fix a little this, you move a little bit of that. But I will say that Harold and I met, we spoke at length, we pitched ideas, we talked about where the studio had issues and things we had to deal with, and kind of straightened it out. I would go back and rewrite it, and then he would reread it and make notes. And then it started transforming as we went to pre-production. We would talk through how something would work, and then you'd say, okay, you write that part, I'll write this part. And that was really fun. And then we'd sort of justify the things together. And then he took the whole thing and disappeared for four days or something and just wrote the Harold Ramis version, just kind of smoothed it all out with his voice and his priorities. And then there's the process of making the movie, which, you know, Harold and Bill Murray are used to working improvisationally. So they'll shoot it once according to the script, and then they'll shoot it again, just making stuff up and keep doing that to keep it fresh and funny, obviously sticking to the whatever the scene needs to accomplish, but sometimes the lines changed. And then in editing, you realize that half the stuff that went in there wasn't necessary to pull it out. And I think Harold did some reshoots where he added that scene at the beginning in the weather station where that wasn't even there. You know, you go along, you change a little bit, you start to realize where the strengths are, and you make everything conform to that. It's just almost one word at a time evolving over a couple of years. So I cannot tell you how many drafts there were. There are lots of pieces of drafts. Here's the sixth draft of the fourth scene, you know, like that. You mentioned production, you know, and they say that Hollywood screenwriters don't always get the best, you know, uh, situation on sets. Maybe they're kind of just waiting around, you know, or just feel a little alienated on set. What was your experience on the set of Groundhog Day? Were you there? Were you around Bill Murray and Harold? Walk us through your experience there. 
it was an adventure. It was kind of tense because I didn't know what to expect or how hard to push and how much to lay back. I spent a lot of time with both Harold and Bill, and it was fun being on a movie set. And it was, it was the first time I'd done that. And it was exciting to, you know, see an empty warehouse with a whole lot of desks in it that they tell you this is going to be filled with accountants pretty soon. <laughs> and another place that was a set being built and, and the exteriors around Woodstock and all that it was really great. So I was there for pre-production and then for the first week or two of production, but I was not necessary. They enjoyed having me there. They'd say, hey, Danny, here, want to put on the headphones and listen to this while we shoot and stuff like that. But it was, it was freezing cold. So being outside during the shoots was no pleasure. You know, when you're standing around like that, it was about as cold as I've ever been. And, you know, that bone chilling kind of cold. And Harold and Bill were, you know, Harold's a writer. He was taking care of making things the way he wanted them to be. And at the time, I had just moved to Santa Fe, and I felt like I had abandoned my family. <laughs> I was off in Woodstock having this Hollywood adventure, and my wife was moving into the house alone with a baby and a dog. And so I kind of weighed that situation, decided it was better for me to go home. And also, as a you know, a young man with a young family and a young career, I was trying to decide what my priorities were. Was I going to be one of those guys who kind of was 100% for the career and kind of let the family, you know, be the tail that wags? And I decided, no, this is more important to me and I can find the right balance. And so I left. I just went home. <laughs> so I was not part of the rest of the finishing process. We talked on the phone and they kept me up to date on things that were going on, and that was fun for me. And it was nice of them to include me, but I wasn't a big part of writing in the production process. Groundhog Day has since become a classic, iconic film. Why do you think the story, the film, resonates with people so much? For a bunch of reasons. I think it captures an experience and gives it a name, this feeling that we are just stuck in some kind of repeating pattern, and it feels a little hopeless and hard to get out of. And that, the closest thing anyone had ever had to that, you know, literature-wise, was the idea of deja vu. But this was more profound way of encapsulating a human experience that we all go through and a society experience, too. So there's that. And the other thing that I think brings people back over and over is that it's very organically optimistic. It's a very empowering movie because it doesn't just kind of glibly jump to the end. There was a process that Phil went through that got him from feeling stuck to realizing that his life was an open book with a million opportunities and his ability to feel empowered and joyful just had to do with changing his attitude. And it wasn't waiting for the world to change. The world was an experiment. It was the same day every day. And the first day he entered that, it was like the worst day of his life. And the day at the very end could be described very easily as one of the best days of his life, if not the best day. And it's all the same day. And the only thing that changed was Phil. And for people to, you know, that cathartic aspect of movies, 
really works here. People feel that it was not a trick that he came by his new way of looking at the world. It was something that anybody could do. So I think it stuck for those reasons, the recognition of this phenomenon and the feeling that, you know, once you've recognized it, you actually can work your way out of it. The time loop concept specifically, I'm sure you get this question a lot, you know, that concept existed before. And I'm sure that it's been reused since Groundhog Day, especially since the popularization of Groundhog Day. Were you inspired by any stories that involved temporal loops before? And also, on the other side, have there been other pieces of content that have successfully used it since that you are a fan of, or have you seen any? I've seen a lot of them. At some point, some journalist was writing a story about that, and I got to see a huge list. And I was like, wow, I hadn't even seen a lot of those movies. The ones that I've seen, for the most part, what happens is some friend of mine or relative will call me up and say, have you seen the latest ripoff? You were robbed. I hope you're getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? My feeling when I wrote Groundhog Day was this could go in so many different directions. There are so many things to be mined here it's going to be kind of difficult to restrict what I do. And one big choice I made was like, wow, this would make an amazing David Lynch film, you know, kind of dark and detailed and into the dark recesses of the human psyche. Because if you're moving into a life without consequences, you can go there. That's one way to get there. But I had just had this baby and I had this new life and I was like, no, I feel happy and joyful. (laughs) optimistic. And frankly, I usually feel that way. So I'm not going to write the David Lynch version. I'm going to write something that's positive and happy and life-affirming. And that's how it came out. So anybody who comes out and does another version of that, I get excited. I think it's fun. I'm glad people are exploring it. And a couple of my friends did that too. Screenwriters I've met over the years. Chris McQuarrie had his that was sort of, you know, in a war situation where you had to use your knowledge of each day to do a little bit better the next day. And Richard Curtis did a time loop thing that I thought was a lot of fun. And then all of the, you know, the one on a train (laughs) where the bomb was supposed to go off in Chicago. And see, I can't remember the names of any of these, but I'd say that people bring different aspects to it that are fun. And I applaud all that. Plus, for my ego's sake, Usually when they're reviewed, they compare it to Groundhog Day. So I'm not (laughs) completely lost in the ether. We've been talking about Groundhog Day, and I'm sure that a lot of the people listening are fans of that film. And I'm sure so many people want to see more Danny Rubin scripts and film and TV shows. What can they look forward to? And is there a world where we can see another Danny Rubin TV show or film soon? Soon? I doubt it partially because of COVID and I'm not making any real efforts to market anything and get anything out there. I do have a TV series I've been developing kind of about the characters and interactions and ways of thinking around Santa Fe, which is very different from what people are used to seeing. And I think it'll be fun and whimsical. And there's a screenplay, actually, I wrote for Jim Cameron many years ago that has gotten some renewed interest as a Netflix project, and maybe that'll happen. That's my Scheherazade Western. (laughs) It's a guy being led out to the gallows, and they put the noose around his neck and say, any last words before we hang you? And he starts to tell this amazing story about how he got into this situation. 
And then they cut back and it's nighttime and he's still standing there. And they say, well, maybe we can hang you tomorrow because they want to hear the story. And it's a very powerful story about storytelling, which was important to me when I wrote it. And I'm kind of looking forward to getting to revisit that again. Besides that, I write songs and some of them with the amazing Ron Crowder, who's a New Mexico favorite. And hopefully you'll be hearing some of those soon. So a little this, a little that. Love that. Danny, are you ready for a few questions we call a series of seemingly random questions? Go for it. First one, I believe you mentioned earlier that sometimes Groundhog Day can be memed. It's very memeable. Most recently, current presidential election, they've been using the memes to make Groundhog Day, like the election keeps going on every day. Have you seen those? Any thoughts on those? Oh, sure. I mean, there was, you know, I was just waiting for the Groundhog Day meme to appear when the election <laughs> didn't end on the first day of counting. Um, so I saw, well, it's election day again, you know, with Bill Murray doing that. And then there was a celebratory one that had something to do with the race being called. So I don't remember that one either. I don't know. I guess I like seeing it appear in the culture. It's sort of flattering and it's nice to feel like I've done something that wasn't instantly forgotten. So that's good. It has been a little frustrating that so many people refer to Groundhog Day as the problem, but not as the solution. There hasn't been a lot of, you know, did you see the end of the movie? You know, <laughs> you didn't stay stuck. It wasn't a hopeless, hopeless situation. But that seems to be the most useful use of the term in terms of politics in the world. The next question before the podcast mentioned that you talk about Groundhog Day a lot, and there's probably a lot of questions everybody asks you. Is there one question you're surprised that people never ask you about? Or is there one thing that people maybe don't know yet? No. It's all been asked. <laughs> it's been 20 years of <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's kind of been covered. Although I appreciate your asking. You gave me an opportunity to let it out if nobody had asked. <laughs> the musical. The best part for me about the fact that Groundhog Day is still popular after all these years is that there was a lot of interest in the musical, which is something I'd been trying to get made for a long time. And we made it. And it was about as much fun as I've ever had as a writer, working in collaboration with these amazing people and putting on a show. And in getting to revisit the material, for me, that was really great. One of the things I thought was interesting is how well it still holds up. And the only real big thing that I had to make any reference to was the fact that we now all have cell phones and being stuck in some place with perfect communication and endless entertainment and all that. It has its restrictions, sort of as we know from our COVID experience, but it's not quite as isolating as it would have been with everything disconnected as it was back in 1993. So I had to find a way to deal with that elegantly and quickly. But other than that, everything is still relevant. And the only other thing was redressing a few things that have changed over time. For instance, I always felt that Rita's role was a little bit thin and could be built up better. It was always the story of Phil Connors with all these other players supporting him. But making Rita's character a more contemporary kind of working woman seemed like a good idea with more complex notions of love and relationships than I think we were even attempting 20 years ago. 
Second to last question. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? I don't eat fast food very often. <laughs> I don't know why well, I would that's take why we asked a writer who I really cared about to a fast food restaurant. <laughs> hey, want to go down to Popeye's with me? <laughs> that was me and Anton Chekhov down at Popeye's. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your final decision? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? It's about <laughs> as arbitrary as anything. I will say I had the pleasure of having a lunch with William Goldman once. That was a real treat. I feel privileged to have done that. And if I hadn't done that, I probably would take him down to the church's chicken or, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Wendy's. What are these places? <laughs> the final question, if you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to aspiring writers, what would you say? Oh, man, this is so unoriginal and uninteresting. It just has to do with writing. Just write, just write. You can spend your life in your head thinking of the best idea ever, but if you can't write it, it's not really worth it. And if you're worried about getting out of the habit of writing, there's a solution. Just start writing. It's really the best solution to any problem that you're having as a writer is just to keep writing. Unless not writing is a good solution to getting back to writing. So there, I've just said absolutely nothing. <laughs> Love that. So that being said, our very, very last question, the last and most important one. And the last question is, did you have fun today talking to us? I know you always talk about Groundhog Day. It probably feels like Groundhog Day to talk about Groundhog Day at this point. But did you at least have some fun? I did. You amused me. Thank you, Kenny. Really appreciate it. Did you want to plug anything? I know you were working on some project, but is there a website? Or is there social media? Are you off the grid? I'm on the grid, but in a kind of like pathetically light-handed manner. It's a whole universe that I was like, ah, I don't want to get too used to this world. I'm still just having plenty of good time in the real world. But no, nothing in particular to plug. I appreciate that you asked me, but no, just carry on, folks. Carry on. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Thanks so much again. We really appreciate your insights, your time. It really means a lot to us. It's an honor to talk to you and we Thanks wish you the best of luck. Best of luck. Nice Thank you, man. Thanks again. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the writer experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating a review and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at writer experience and Twitter and Facebook at writer exp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.